one chapter one of the mrs mallet originally published as the bridge dividing by e h young this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by ann erickson toronto the mrs mallet by e h young book one rose chapter one on the high land, overlooking the distant channel and the hills beyond it, the spring day set in azure was laced with gold and green. Horse bushes flaunted their color, larch trees hung out their tassels, and celandines starred the bright green grass in an air which seemed palpably blue. It made a mist among the trees and poured itself into the ground, as though to dye the earth from which hyacinths would soon spring. Far away the channel might have been a still blue lake the hills wore soft blue veils and like a giant reservoir the deeper blue of the sky promised unlimited supplies there were sheep and lambs bleeding in the fields birds sang with a piercing sweetness and no human being was in sight until up on the broad grassy track which branched off from the main road and had the larch wood on one side and on the other rough descending fields there appeared a woman on a horse. The bit jingled gaily, the leather creaked, the horse, smelling the turf, gave a snort of delight, but his rider restrained him lightly. On her right hand was the open country sloping slowly to the water. On her left was the stealthiness of the larch wood. Over and about everything was the blue day. Straight ahead of her the track dipped to a lane, and beyond that the ground rose again in fields sprinkled with the drab and white of sheep and lambs, and backed by the elm trees of Sales Hall. She could see the chimneys of the house, and the rooks' nests in the elm tops, and as though the sight reminded her of something mildly amusing, the smoothness of her face was ruffled by a smile, the stillness of her pose by a quick glance about her, but if she looked for anyone, she did not find him. There were small sounds from the larch wood, little creakings and rustlings, but there was no human footstep, and the only visible movements were made by the trees and in the grass, the flight of a bird and the distant gambling of lambs. She rode on down the steep stony slope into the lane, and after hesitating for a moment, she turned to the right where the lane was broadened by a border of rich grass and a hedge-top bank. Here primroses lay snugly in their clumps of crinkled leaves, and wishing to feel the coolness of their slim, pale stalks between her fingers, Rose Mallet dismounted, slipped the reins over her arm, and allowed her horse to feed while she stooped to the flowers. Then, in the full sunshine, with the soft breeze trying to loosen her hair, with the flowers in her bare hand, she straightened herself, consciously happy in the beauty of the day in the freedom and strength of her body, in the smell of the earth and the sight of the country she had known and loved all her life. It was long since she had ridden here without encountering Frances Sales, who was bound up with her knowledge of the country, and who, quite evidently, wished to annex some of the love she lavished on it. This was a ridiculous desire, which made her smile again. Yet, while she was glad to be alone, she missed the attention of his presence. He had developed a capacity which was like another sense for finding her when she rode on his domains or in their neighborhood, and she was surprised to feel a slight annoyance at his absence. 
an annoyance which illogically was increased by the sight of his black spaniel the sure forerunner of his master making his way through the hedge a moment later the tall figure of sales himself appeared above the budding twigs he greeted her in the somewhat sulky manner to which she was accustomed he was a young man with a grievance and he looked at her as though to-day it were personified in her she answered him cheerfully what a wonderful day the day is all right he said holding the primroses to her nose she looked around catkins were swaying lightly on the willows somewhere out of sight a tiny runnel of water gurgled the horse ate noisily the grass had a vividness of green like the concentrated thought of spring i don't see how anything can be wrong this morning she said uh you're lucky to think so he answered gazing at her clear pale profile well she turned to ask patiently what is the matter with you i'm worried has a cow died and ignoring his angry gesture she went on i don't think you take enough care of your property whenever i ride here i find you strolling about miserably with a dog that's your fault i don't quite see why she said pleasantly but no doubt you are right but has a cow died of course not why should it they do i suppose it's the old man he isn't well and he's badgering me to go away to canada and learn more about farming so you should of course you'd say so or do you think you can't he missed or ignored her point he's ill i don't want to leave him and in a louder voice he added almost shouted i don't want to leave you her gray eyes were watching the swinging catkins her hand lifting the primroses hid a smile again he had the benefit of her profile the knot of her dark thick hair and the shadowy line of her eyelashes but she made no comment on his remark and after a moment of sombre staring he uttered the one word well yes well i've told you oh i think you ought to go then you don't love me from under her raised eyebrows she looked at him steadily no i don't love you she said slowly there was no need to consider her answer she was sure of it she was fond of him but she could not romantically love someone who looked and behaved like a spoiled boy she glanced from his handsome frowning face in which the mouth was open for protest to a scene perfectly set for a love affair there was not so much as a sheep in sight there was only the horse who careless of these human beings still ate eagerly chopping the good grass with his teeth and the spaniel who panted self-consciously and with a great affectation of exhaustion the place was beautiful and the sunlight had some quality of enchantment faint delicious smells were offered on the wind and withdrawn in caprice the trees were all tipped with green and interlaced with blue air and blue sky she wished she could say she loved him and she repeated her denial half regretfully rose he pleaded i've known you all my life perhaps that's why perhaps i know you too well you don't you don't know how how i love you and i should be different with you i should be happy i've never been happy yet you can't she said slowly get happiness through a person if you can't get it through yourself
Yes, if you were the person. She shook her head. I'm sorry, I can't help it. He reproached her. You've never thought about it. Well, isn't that the same thing? And she added, you're so far away. I can get through the hedge, he said practically. She smiled in the way that always puzzled, irritated, and lured him. His words set him still further off. He did not even understand her speech. Is it better now? he asked close to her. No, no better. She looked at his face so deeply tanned that his brown hair and mustache looked pale by contrast, and his eyes extraordinarily blue. His appearance always pleased her. It was almost a part of the landscape, but the landscape was full of change, of mystery in spite of its familiarity, and she found him dull, monotonous, with a sort of stupidity which was not without attraction, but which would be wearying for a whole life. She had no desire to be his wife and the mistress of Sales Hall, its fields and woods and farms. The world was big, the possibilities in life were infinite, and she felt she was fit, perhaps destined, to play a larger part than this he offered her, and if she could, as she foresaw, only play a greater one through the agency of some man, she must have that man colossal, for she was only twenty-three years old. No, she said firmly, we are not suited to each other. You are to me, his angry helplessness seemed to darken the sunlight. You are to me, no one else. I've known you all my life. Rose, think about it. I shall, but I shan't change. I don't believe you really love me, Francis, but you want someone you can growl at legitimately. I don't think you would find me satisfactory. Another woman might enjoy the privilege. He made a wild movement, startling to the horse. You don't understand me. Well, then, that ought to settle it. And now I'm going. Don't go, he pleaded. And look, Harry, you might have loosened your girths. I might, but I didn't expect to be here so long. I didn't expect to be so pleasantly entertained. She put out her hand for his shoulder, and bending unwillingly, he received her foot. You needn't have said that, he muttered, about being entertained. You're so ungracious, Francis. I can't help it when I care so much. From her high seat, she looked at him with a sort of envy. It must be rather nice to feel anything deeply enough to make you rude. You torture me, he said. She was hurt by the sight of his suffering. She wished she could give him what he wanted. She felt as though she were injuring a child yet her youth resented his childishness. It claimed a passion capable of overwhelming her. She hardened a little. Goodbye, she said, and if I were you, I should certainly go abroad. I shall, he threatened her. Goodbye, then, she repeated amiably. Don't go, he begged in a low voice. Rose, I don't believe you know what you are doing, and you've always loved the country, you've always loved our place. You like our house. You told me once you envied us our rookery. Yes, I love the rookery, she said. And you'd have your own stables and as many horses as you wanted, and milk from our own cows and home-laid eggs. Oh, you're laughing at me. You always do. So you see, she said, bending a little towards him, I shouldn't make a very good companion. 
But I could put up with it from you, he cried. I could put up with anything from you. She made a gesture. That was where he chiefly failed. The colossal gentleman of her imagination was a tyrant. She rode home, up and along the track, onto the high road with its grass borders and across the shadows of the elm branches which striped the road with black. It was a long road, accompanied on one side and for about two miles by a tall, smooth wall, unscalable, guarding the privacy of a local magnet's park. It was a pitiless wall, without a chink, without a roughness that could be seized by hands. It was higher than Rose Mallet as she sat on her big horse, and but for the open fields on the other side where lambs jumped and bleated, that road would have oppressed the spirit, for the wall was a solid witness to the pride and the power of material possession. Rose Mallet hated it, not on account of the pride and the power, but because it was ugly, monstrous, and so inhospitably smooth that not a moss would grow on it. More vaguely, she disliked it because it set so definite a limit to her path. She was always glad when she could turn the corner and, leaving the wall to prolong the side of the right angle it made at this point, she could take a side road, edging a wooded slope. That slope made one side of the gorge through which the river ran, and looking down through the trees, she caught glimpses of water and a red scar of rock on the other cliff. The sound of a steamer's paddles threshing the water came to her clearly, and the crying of the gulls was so familiar that she hardly noticed it. And all the way she was thinking of Francis Sales, his absurdity, his good looks, and his distress. But in the permanence of his distress, even in its sincerity, she did not much believe. For he had failed to touch anything but her pity and that failure seemed an argument against the vehemence of his love. Yet she liked him. She had always liked him, since as a little girl she had been taken by her stepsisters to a haymaking party at Sales Hall. They had gone in a hired carriage, but one so smart and well-equipped that it might have been their own, and she remembered the smell of the leather seats worn by the sun, the sound of the horse's hoofs, and the sight of Caroline and Sophia, extremely gay in their summer muslins and shady hats, each holding a lace parasol to protect the complexion already delicately touched up with powder and rouge. She had been very proud of her stepsisters as she sat facing them, and she had decided to wear just such muslin dresses, just such hats, when she grew up. Caroline was in pink with coral beads and a pink feather drooping on her dark hair and Sophia, very fair, with a freckle here and there peeping, as though curious, through the powder, wore Gilla with a big bowed sash. She was always very slim, and the only fair mallet in the family. But even in those days, Caroline was inclined to stoutness. She carried it well, however, with a great dignity, fortified by reassurances from Sophia, and Rose's recollections of the conversations of these two was of their constant compliments to each other and the tireless discussion of clothes. These conversations still went on. Fifteen years ago, she had sat in that carriage in a white frock with socks and ankle-strapped black shoes, her long hair flowing down her back, and she had heard then, as one highly privileged, the words she would hear again when she arrived home for tea. Under their tilted parasols, they had made their little speeches. No one was more distinguished than Caroline, 
No girl of twenty had a prettier figure than Sophia's. How well the pink feather looked against Caroline's hair. Rose, listening intently, but not staring too hard, lest she should attract their attention to herself, had looked at the fields and at the high, smooth wall, and wondered whether she would rather reach Sales Hall and enjoy the party, or drive on forever in this delightful company. But the carriage turned up the avenue of elms, and Rose saw for the first time the house which Francis Sales now offered as an attraction. It was a big, square house with honest square windows, and the drive, shadowed by the elms, ran through the fields where the haymaking was in progress. Only immediately in front of the house were there any flower beds, and there were no garden trees or shrubs. The effect was of great freedom and spaciousness, of unaffected homeliness. And even then the odd, delightful mixture of hall and farm, the grandeur of the elm avenue set in the simplicity of fields, gave pleasure to Rose Mallet's beauty-loving eyes. Anything might happen in a garden that suddenly became a field, in a field that ended in a garden, and the house had the same capacity for surprise. There was a matted hall sunk a foot below the threshold, and Rose, accustomed to the delicate order of Nelson Lodge, with its slim, shining old furniture, its polished brass and gleaming silver, the comfortable carelessness of this place, with a man's cap on the hall table, a group of sticks and a pair of slippers in a corner, and an open newspaper on a chair, seemed the very home of freedom. It was a masculine house in which Mrs. Sales, a gentle lady with a fichu of lace around her soft neck, looked strangely out of place, yet entirely happy in her strangeness. On the day of the party, Rose had only a glimpse of the interior. The three Miss Mallets, Caroline sweeping majestically ahead, were led into the hayfield where Mrs. Sales sat serenely in a wicker chair. It was evident at once that Mr. Sales, bluff and hearty, with gaitered legs, was fond of little girls. He realized that this one with the black hair and the solemn gray eyes would prefer eating strawberries from the beds to partaking of them with cream from a plate. He knew without being told that she would not care for gambling with other children in the hay. He divined her desire to see the pigs and horses, and it was near the pigsties that she met Francis Sales. He was tall for twelve years old, and Rose respected him for his age and size, but she wondered why he was with the pigs instead of with his guests, to whom his father drove him off with a laugh. "'Says he can't bear parties,' Mr. Sales remarked genially to Rose. "'What do you think of that?' "'I like pigs, too,' Rose answered, to be surprised by his prolonged chuckle. Mr. Sales, and in the intervals of his familiar conversation with the pigs, wanted to know why Rose had not brought her father with her. "'Oh, he is too old,' Rose said, rather shocked. Her father had always seemed old to her, as indeed he was.' for she was the child of his second marriage, and her young mother had died when she was born. Her stepsisters, devoted to the little girl, and perhaps not altogether sorry to be rid of a stepmother younger than themselves, had tried to make up for that loss, but they were much occupied with the social activities of Radstow, and they belonged to an otherwise inactive generation. So to the Froze had a grievance it was that they never played games with her, never ran, or played ball, or bowled hoops, as she saw the mothers of other children doing. 
for such sporting she had to rely upon her nurse who was of rather a solemn nature and liked little girls to behave demurely out of doors general mallet saw to it that his youngest daughter early learnt to ride her memories of him were of a big man on a big horse not talkative somewhat stern and sad becoming companionable only when they rode out together on the high downs crowning the old city and then he was hardly recognizable as the father who heard her prayers every night these two duties of teaching her to ride and of hearing her pray and his insistence on her going as caroline and sophia had done to a convent school in france made up as far as she could remember the sum of his interest in her and when she returned home from school for the last time it was to attend his funeral she was hardly sorry she was certainly not glad she envied the spontaneous tears of her stepsisters and she found the lugubriousness of the occasion much alleviated by the presence of her stepbrother reginald she had hardly seen him since her childhood sophia always spoke of him as she might have spoken of the dead caroline sometimes referred to him in good round terms sometimes with an indulgent laugh and for rose he had the charm of mystery the fascination of this scapegrace he was handsome but good looks were a prerogative of the mallets he was married to a wife he had never introduced to his family and he had a little girl what his profession was rose did not know perhaps his face was his fortune as certainly his sisters had been his victims after the funeral he had several interviews with caroline and sophia when rose could hear the mannish voice of caroline growing gruff with indignation and the high tones of sophia rising to a squeak he emerged from these encounters with an angry face and a weak mouth stubbornly set but for rose he always had a gay word or a pretty speech she was a real mallet he told her she was more his sister than the others and she liked to hear him say so because he had a kind of grace and a caressing voice yet the cool judgment which was never easily upset assured her that a man with his mouth must be in the wrong he was in fact pursuing his old practice of extracting money from his sisters and he only returned presumably to his wife and child when james batty the family solicitor had been called to the lady's aid but they both cried when he went away he is so lovable sophia sobbed my dear he's a rake caroline replied carefully dabbing her cheeks all the mallets are rakes yes even the general oh he took to religion in the end i know but that's what they do she chuckled when there's nothing left i'm afraid i shall take to it myself some day i've sown my wild oats too oh no i'm not going to tell rose anything about them sophia you needn't be afraid but she'll hear of them sooner or later from anybody who remembers caroline mallet in her youth rose had received this confession gravely but she had not needed the reassurance of sophia it isn't so dear rose a flirt yes but never wicked never my dear of course not of course not rose repeated she had already realized that her stepsisters must be humored riding slowly rose recalled that haymaking party and her gradual friendship as the years went by with the unsociable young sales 
a friendship which had been tacitly recognized by them both, when meeting her soon after his mother's death, he had laid his arms and head on the low stone wall by which they were standing, and wept without restraint. It was a display she could not have given herself, and it shocked her in a young man, but it left her in his debt. She felt she owed something to a person who had shown such confidence in her, and though at the time she had been dumb, and as it seemed to her far from helpful, she did not forget her liability. However, she could not remember it to the extent of marrying him. She had always shown him more kindness than she really felt, and in considering these things on her way home, she decided that she was still doing as much as he could expect. She had by this time turned another corner, and the high bridge, swung from one side of the gorge to the other, was before her. At the toll-house was the red-faced man, who had not altered in the whiteness of a single hair since she had been taken across the bridge by her nurse, and allowed to peep fearfully through the railings, which had towered like a forest above her head and the view from the bridge was still, for her, a fairy vision. Seawards, the river, now full and hiding its muddy banks, which revealed, had their own opalescent beauty, went its way between the cliffs, clothed on one hand with trees, save for a big red and yellow gash where the stone was being quarried, and on the other side with bare rock, topped by the downs spreading far out of sight. Landwards, the river was trapped into docks, spanned by low bridges, and made into the glistening part of a patchwork of water, brick, and iron. Red-roofed old houses, once the haunts of fashion, were clustered near the water, but divided from it now by tram lines, companion anachronisms to the steamers entering and leaving the docks. But by the farther shore, one small strip of river was allowed to flow in its own way, and its skirted meadows rising to the horizon and carrying with them more of those noble elms in which the whole countryside was rich. Her horse's hoofs sounded hollow on the bridge. Rose passed across, and at the other toll-house door she saw the thin, pale man, with spectacles on the end of his pointed nose, who had first touched his hat to her when she rode on a tiny pony by the side of her father on his big horse. That man was part of her life, and she presumably was part of his. He had watched many upper Radstow children from the perambulator stage, and to him she remarked on the weather, as she had done to the red-faced man at the other end. It was a beautiful day. They were having a wonderful spring. It would soon be summer, she said, but on repetition these words sounded false and intensely dreary. It would soon be summer, but what did that mean to her? Festivities suited to the season would be resumed in Radstow. There would be lawn tennis in the big gardens, and young men in flannels and girls in white would stroll about the roads, and gay voices would be heard in the dusk. There would be garden parties, and Mrs. Batty, the wife of the lawyer, would be lavish with tennis for the young, gossip for the middle-aged, and unlimited strawberries and ices for all. Rose would be one of the guests at this, as at all the parties, and for the first time, as though her refusal of Francis Sales had had some strange effect, as though that rejected future had created a distaste for the one fronting her, she was aghast at the prospect of perpetual chatter, tea, and pretty dresses. She was surely meant for something better, harder, demanding greater powers. 
she had by inheritance good manners a certain social gift but she had here nothing to conquer with these weapons what was she to do the idea of qualifying for the business of earning her bread did not occur to her no female mallet had ever done such a thing and not all the male ones marriage opened the only door but not marriage with francis sales not marriage with anyone she knew in radstow and her stepsisters had no inclination to leave the home of their youth the scene of their past successes for her sake rose sat very straight on her horse not frowning for she never frowned but wearing rather a set expression so that an acquaintance passing unrecognized made the usual reflection on the youngest miss mallet's pride and the pity that one so young should sometimes look so old and rose was wishing that the spring would last forever the spring with its promise of excitement and adventure which would not be fulfilled though one was willingly deceived into believing that it would yet she had youth's happy faith in accident something breathless and terrific would sweep her as on the winds of storm out of this peaceful gracious life this place where feudalism still survived where men touched their hats to her as her due and it was her due she raised her head and gave her pale profile to the houses on one side the trees and the open spaces of green on the other and not because she was a mallet though it was a name honoured in radstow but because she was herself hats would always be touched to her and it was the touchers who would feel themselves complimented in the act she knew that but the knowledge was not much to her she wished she could offer homage for a change and the colossal figure of her imagination loomed up again a rough man perhaps yes he might be rough if he were also great rough and the scandal of her stepsisters as she rode under the flowering trees to the stable where she kept her horse she wondered whether she should tell her stepsisters of francis sales's proposal but she knew she would not do so she seldom told them anything they did not know already they would think it a reasonable match they might urge her acceptance they were anxious for her to marry but caroline at least was proud of the inherent mallet distaste for the marriage state we're all flirts she would say for the thousandth time we can't settle down not one of us and holding up a thumb and forefinger and pinching them together she would add we like to hold men's hearts like that and let them go it was great nonsense rose thought but it had the necessary spice of truth the mallets were not easily pleased and they were not good givers of anything except gold the easiest thing to give rose wished she could give the difficult things love devotion and self-sacrifice but she could not or perhaps she had no opportunity she was fond of her stepsisters but her most conscious affection was the one she felt for her horse she left him at the stable and fastening up her riding skirt she walked slowly home she had not far to go a steep street where narrow-fronted old houses informed the public that apartments were to be let within brought her to the broad space of grass and trees called the green where she had just passed on her horse straight ahead of her was the wide street flanked by houses of which her home was one a low white building hemmed in on each side by another and with a small walled garden in front of it not a large house but one full of character 
and of quiet self-assurance. Mallets had lived in it for several generations, long before the opposite houses were built, long before the road had, lower down, degenerated into a region of shops. These houses, all rechristened in a day of enthusiasm Nelson Lodge, with Trafalgar House, taller, bigger, but not so white, on one side of it, and Hardy Cottage, somewhat smaller, on the other, had faced open meadows in General Mallet's boyhood. Round the corner, facing the green, were a few contemporaries, and they all had a slight look of disdain for the later comers, yet no single house was flagrantly new. There was not a villa in sight, and on the green two old stone monuments to long-dead and long-forgotten warriors kept company with the old trees under which children were now playing, while nurses wheeled perambulators on the bisecting paths. The green itself sloped upwards until it became a flat-topped hill, once a British or a Roman camp, and thence the river could be seen between its rocky cliffs and the woods Rose had lately skirted, clothing the farther side in every shade of green. She lingered for a moment to watch the children playing, the nursemaid slowly pushing, the elms opening their crumpled leaves like babies' hands. She had a momentary desire to stay, to wander round the hill and look with untired eyes at the familiar scene. But she passed on under the tyranny of tea. The mallets were always in time for meals, and the meals were exquisite, like the polish on the old brass door-knocker, like the furniture in the white-panelled hall, like the beautiful old mahogany in the drawing-room, the old china, the glass bowls full of flowers. Rose found Caroline and Sophia there on either side of a small wood fire, while facing the fire and spread in a chair not too low and not too narrow for her bulk, sat Mrs. Batty, flushed, costume for spring, her hat a flower garden. Just in time, Caroline said. Touch the bell, please, Sophia. Susan saw me, Rose said, and the elderly parlour maid entered at that moment with the teapot. Rose insists on having a latch key, Sophia explained. What would the general have said? What indeed, Caroline echoed. Young rakes are always old prudes. Yes, the general was a rake, Sophia. You needn't look so modest. I think I understand, men. Yes, yes, Caroline, no one better, but we are told to honour our father and mother. And I do honour him, Caroline guffawed. Honour him all the more. She had a deep voice and a deep laugh. She ought, she always said, to have been a man. But there was nothing masculine about her appearance. Her dark hair, carefully tinted where grayness threatened, was piled in many puffs above a curly fringe. On the bodice of her flounced silk frock there hung a heavy golden chain and locket. Earrings dangled from her large ears. There were rings on her fingers and powder and a hint of rouge on her face. She laughed again. Mrs. Batty knows I'm right. Mrs. Batty's tight-gloved hand made a movement. She was a little in awe of the Miss Mallets. With them she was always conscious of her inferior descent. No general had ever ornamented her family, and her marriage with James Batty had been a giddy elevation for her. But she was by no means humble. She had her place in local society. She had a fine house in that exclusive part of Radstow called The Slope, and her husband was a member of the oldest firm of lawyers in the city. 
You are very naughty, Miss Caroline, she said, knowing that that was the remark looked for. She gave a little nod of her flower-covered head. And we've just got to put up with them, whatever they are. Yes, yes, poor dears, Sophia murmured. They're different. They can't help it. Nonsense, Caroline retorted. They're just the same. There's nothing to choose between me and Reginald. Nothing except discretion. Oh, Caroline, dear, Sophia entreated. Discretion, Caroline repeated firmly, and Mrs. Batchy, bending forward stiffly because of her constricting clothes, and with a creak and rustle, ventured to ask in low tones, Have you any news of Mr. Mallet lately? The three elder ladies murmured together. Rose, indifferent, concerned with her own thoughts, ate a creamy cake. This was one of the conversations she had heard before, and there was no need for her to listen. She was roused by the departure of Mrs. Batty. Poor thing, Caroline remarked as the door closed. It's a pity she has no daughter with an eye for color. The roses in her hat were pale in comparison with her face. Why doesn't she use a little powder? Though I suppose that would turn her purple. And after all, she does very well considering what she is. But why, why did James Batty marry her? And he was one of our own friends. You remember the sensation at the time, Sophia. Sophia remembered very well. She was a pretty girl, Caroline, and good-natured. She has lost her looks, but she still has a kind heart. Personally, I would rather keep my looks, said Caroline, touching her fringe before the mirror, and I never had a kind heart to cherish. Tenderly, Sophia shook her head. It isn't true, she whispered to Rose, the kindest in the world. It's just her way. Rose nodded, understanding. Then she stood up, tall and slim in her severe clothes, her high boots. The goat clock on the mantelpiece said it was only five o'clock. There were five more hours before she could reasonably go to bed. Where did you ride today, dear? Sophia asked. Over the bridge. And to dissipate some of her boredom, she added, I met Francis Sales. He thinks of going abroad. There was an immediate confusion of little exclamations and a chatter. Going abroad? Why? To learn farming. Oh, dear, Sophia sighed. And we thought, we hoped. She must do as she likes, Caroline said, and Rose smiled. The Mallets don't care for marrying. Look at us, free as the air, and with plenty of amusing memories. In this world, nobody gets more than that, and we have been saved much trouble. Don't marry, my dear Rose. You're assuming a good deal, Rose said. But Rose is not like us, Sophia protested. We have each other, but we shall die before she does and leave her lonely. She ought to marry, Caroline. We ought to have more parties. We're not doing our duty. Parties? No, Rose said. We have enough of them. If you threaten me with more, I shall go into a convent. Caroline laughed and Sophia sighed again. That would be beautiful, she said. Sophia, how dare you? Sophia persisted mildly. So romantic, a young girl giving up all for God. And Caroline gave the ribald laugh on which she prided herself, a shocking sound. Rose Mallet, Sophia went on, so lost in her vision that the jarring laughter was not heard. Such a pretty name, a nun. She would never be forgotten. People would tell their children, Sister Rose, she developed her idea. Saint Rose, it's as pretty as Saint Cecilia. Pretty.
prettier. Sophia, you're in your dotage, Carolyn cried. A mallet and a nun. Well, she could pray for the rest of us, I suppose. But I would rather you were married, dear, Sophia said serenely, and we have known the sails all our lives. It would have been so suitable. So dull, Rose murmured. And we need praying for, Carolyn said. You be dull either way, Rose. Have your fling, as I did. I've never regretted it. I was the talk of Radstow, wasn't I, Sophia? There was never a ball where I was not looked for, and when I entered the ballroom, she gave a display of how she did it. There was a rush of black coats and white shirts, a mob. I used just to wave them all away, like that. Oh, yes, Sophia, you were a belle, too, but never as you were, Carolyn. You were admired for yourself, Sophia, but with me it was curiosity. They only wanted to hear what I should say next. I had a tongue like a lash. They were afraid of it. Yes, yes, Sophia said hastily, and she glanced at Rose, afraid of meeting skepticism in her clear young eyes. But though Rose was smiling, it was not in mockery. She was thinking of her childhood when, like a happier Cinderella, she had seen her stepsisters in satins and laces, with pendant fans and glittering jewels, excited, rustling with little words of commendation for each other, setting out for the evening parties of which they never tired. They had always kissed her before they went, looking, she used to think, as beautiful as princesses. And men like what they fear, Carolyn added. Yes, dear, Sophia said, and natural flush appeared round the delicate dabs of rouge. She hoped she might be forgiven for her tender deceits. Those young men in the white waistcoats had often laughed at Carolyn rather than at her wit. She was, as Sophia had shrinkingly divined, as often as not their butt. And dear Carolyn had never known it. She must never know it. Never know it. She drew half her happiness from the past, as, so differently, Sophia did herself. And drooping a little, her thoughts went farther back to the last year of her teens, when a pale and penniless young man had been her secret suitor, had gone to America to make his fortune there, and died. She had told no one. Carolyn would have scorned him because he was shy and timid, and he had not had time to earn enough to keep her. He had not had time. She had a faded photograph of him pushed away at the back of a drawer of the walnut bureau in the bedroom she shared with Carolyn, a pale young man wearing a collar too large for his thin neck, a young man with kind, honest eyes. It was a grief to her that she could not wear that photograph in a locket near her heart, but Carolyn would have found out. They had slept in the same bed since they were children, and nothing could be hidden from her except the love she still cherished in her heart. Some day she meant to burn that photograph, lest unsympathetic hands should touch it when she died. But death still seemed far off, and sometimes, even while she was talking to Carolyn, she would pretend to rummage in the drawer, and for a moment she would close her hand upon the photograph to tell him she had not forgotten. She loved her little romance and the gaiety in which she had persisted, even on the day when she heard of his death, and which at first had seemed a necessary but cruel disloyalty, had become in her mind the tenderest of concealments, as though she had wrapped her secret in beauty, laughter, music, and shining garments. Oh, yes, dear Rose, she said, lifting her head. 
you must be married. End of book one, Rose, chapter one. Recording by Anne Erickson, Toronto.